Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 215th episode, and it's titled, What's a Social Theory? Why Bother? I have had a lot of training in theories, but not in obscurantism, so I thought it might be useful to share some of the former while leaving out the latter. Can I first bend your ear for a second to provide a little help for Revolution Z? 215 episodes is a shitload. Really, when I began this, who would have thought? I'd have been unable to do it without the help I have gotten, but I have to admit, a little more help from my friends out there would be a good thing. So how about visiting patreon.com revolutionz, where you can make a donation? And how about letting friends and others know about this now long-running podcast via social media, direct email, or dare I entertain the thought, direct word of mouth? So, that said, people on the left, hell, people all over creation, often talk about theories. Well, what's a theory? Theories are collections of concepts about some real-world area of interest that facilitate explaining, predicting, or intervening in that area. With theories, we explain why and how things occur as they do. We predict what is going to happen given the way things are, and we choose ways of acting to make things turn out as we desire. Some things are better for one or more of these purposes, worse for others. Darwin's theory of natural selection, for example, explains very well, predicts barely at all, and allows intervention of only a quite limited sort. Theories of the solar system, based on Newtonian gravity, not only explain, but also very precisely predict, for example, where a planet will be on some day, and even some hour, 50 years from now. Social theories generally explain, predict, and permit intervention, but none of that with perfect confidence, though each of that with enough relevance to be more useful than just winging it, so to speak. So what do we want for ourselves in the way of theory? As radicals, we want a theory that explains social events and trends so as to situate ourselves, explain it to others, and understand how things are. And we want a theory that can predict these same types of phenomena because we need a notion of what's coming. Finally, and for an activist most important, our theory should help guide our actions to help us work for outcomes that we desire. So it turns out we want a pretty powerful theory for our domain, which is society and history. Well, if we are going to create a powerful theory or conceptual framework for ourselves, we need to know more about what a theory is and what it includes. Theories are built with concepts. So what is a concept? A concept is an idea, most will argue. But what is an idea? I should say, what I am doing in this episode may seem trite for a time as we go through preliminary details. But actually, this basic material is very important, because the differences between theories mostly reside at this level. Once you get past establishing basic concepts, that is, the rest of the theory building is largely mechanical. So what's a concept? You might answer, it's an assumption. Well, yes, sometimes. It's a word, a label. Yes, for our purposes, a concept is just a name for something. A concept is, well, we can perhaps best define it by giving examples. Is atom a concept? Is electron a concept? Is income a concept? Is full employment a concept? Yes, these are all concepts, but what makes them concepts? You might answer, they are names, labels. Yes, they are names of things we think 
out in the real world and which have been, we have broken off from the whole of reality and given a separate name identity. Of all the multitude of interconnected stuff in the world, we want to pay attention to some parts. We want our theory to revolve around and highlight those parts. And so we have concepts to name those parts, or those features or aspects that we especially want to keep track of. Consider an example of a concept inside the human body. What is one? You might answer, how about blood pressure? Yes, or maybe the circulatory system. That's a concept. But what about the head plus the left wrist? We don't have a name for that. The head plus left wrist exists in the world, and we could give it a name if we chose to. Perhaps wrist. But we haven't done that, at least as far as I know. We could have a name for the head plus the left wrist, thereby making it a concept. It would be a way to organize data when thinking theoretically about the biology of human beings. But it turns out that it's not very useful to combine the head and the left wrist to give it the name wrist, because we don't in fact have any interest in tracking the dynamics of the wrist. It doesn't come into play as an entity useful to focus on when trying to explain, predict, or intervene in human biology. What is the difference then between head plus left wrist and the bunches of vessels that string through the body, some in my wrist and some in my head, that we call the circulatory system? The difference is that the circulatory system has characteristics and attributes relevant to our theory's purpose, which is to understand human beings to be able to intervene in health, and that are useful to pay attention to for that reason. That's what concepts are about. We look at reality, and we put a label on some features that we think are useful to track. Tree is a concept, but largest branch plus oldest leaf isn't a concept. Perhaps it sounds stupid put so crassly, largest branch plus oldest leaf. But the idea is that we try to highlight things that facilitate analysis and prediction and help in guiding practice. So far, so good. Now consider the economic concept exchange value. It's roughly what we often call price. The exchange value of a product is what that product trades for. And in different theories, the actual amount an item trades for, relative to what other items trade for, will be explained in different ways. But what value an item trades for is itself a concept. What about the color of the item? Exchange value is a concept that we use in economic theory. Color is not a concept that we use in economic theory. No economist gives a damn about how many items are which color, so economists don't highlight color in their theory. You can pick up any economics textbook and look forever, and you won't find attention to color in the theoretical apparatus. Color of items is not a useful focus to put a label on and to bring it to prime viewing territory in our economic intellectual toolbox. It isn't that color doesn't exist. Products do have colors. It isn't that we couldn't make it an economic concept. We could make it a concept. It is that we choose not to make it an economic concept. And the economists could be wrong, of course. And if they are wrong, their theory will be poorer as a result of leaving out color as a featured concept. But if they are right, as in this case I think they are, then not wasting time tracking color is a sensible choice. So what do we know so far? 
To create a theory, we develop concepts from the whole interconnected tapestry of the real world, and we use them to answer questions about why and how things happen, what we can expect to happen, and how we might affect what happens. Later, if looking at interrelations among our chosen concepts doesn't answer our questions properly, we define more concepts, or we adapt those we are using. Our theory, then, is our understanding of how our various concepts interact and affect one another and move dynamically over time. Okay, so what's the name of some social theories that radicals might use to understand the world in order to intervene to make it better? You might answer, Marxism, feminism? Yes, Marxism and feminism. Also, nationalism is another one. Anarchism is a fourth intellectual framework that radicals critical of existing relations use to understand, predict, and try to guide actions. Call these things theory, call them intellectual frameworks, or call them anything you want. But the point is, they are a way of looking at reality, of organizing our thoughts, of prioritizing what we highlight based on concepts. You can think of each framework as a helpmate that you can carry around with you. You use the helpmate's apparatus and concepts to try to explain, predict, and guide practice. What are the concepts of these different intellectual frameworks or theories? For instance, what are some of the key concepts associated with Marxism? You might answer, class struggle, economics? Certainly class struggle is one, and so is class itself. Economy is, and so is alienation, exploitation, commodity, relations of production, ownership relations, exchange value, use value, profit rate, and so on. So we don't need to detail what all these mean, and perhaps you have only heard some, but just keep these names and your impression of broadly what they refer to in the back of your mind as some key Marxist concepts. Okay, continuing then, what are some anarchist concepts? You might answer, hierarchy, mutual aid. Well, hierarchy is one, perhaps mutual aid, certainly authoritarianism, and also decentralization, perhaps, and certainly the state, dictatorship, and laws, to name a few. Let's continue. What are concepts of feminism? You might answer, patriarchy. Patriarchy is a key feminist concept, sure. What else? Gender, sexuality, sexism? Of course. But we had class up there in Marxism. We could have added, what could we have added as, that's derivative of class? What's the top class in our society? You might answer capitalist. Clearly, capitalist, worker, and maybe some other classes too. And in anarchism, we could have added the authority figure, the person at the top of the hierarchy, the order giver, maybe the dictator or president, and the order taker. What about in feminism? What are some concepts like these, but in feminism? Man and woman? Man and woman, exactly. Or other gendered or sex-defined roles, gay, straight, trans, and also perhaps mother and father, for example. The last two, perhaps being comparable to worker, manager, and owner. There are women and men in the world, and what is a woman and what is a man, as well as the different major roles they occupy, are critically important for feminists. For some non-feminist theories, we say they are just people, and we don't highlight that there are two genders or other kinship and sex-related differences. This can be okay for some purposes. Other times it's not, however. And in history, actually many theorists fail to incorporate sex, gender, and kinship differences out of sexist denial that there is anything other than men, and their theories suffered miserably from the point of view of full understanding, for this conceptual weakness, of course. Okay, finally, what about nationalism? What are some of the key concepts in nationalism? 
nation, ethnicity, race? Yes, and also religion and specific instances of each, sure. Maybe communities, culture, modes of celebration and communication and identification and forms of relations among these, like racism, yes, and ethnocentrism, apartheid, and so on. Now, the very interesting thing in this brief enumeration of concepts, even at this very simple level, even without going into the details of what each one means, is that these various theories are all about understanding and predicting the same world and about trying to change that same world for the better. And yet their intellectual toolboxes are quite different. If we had a bunch of chalkboards and we asked members of different schools of thought to list the eight or ten primary concepts in their orientation on the board, there would be little overlap, perhaps none at all. And if we detailed what the concepts name, even when there is apparent overlap between concepts, it would turn out they have different content in each framework. So what's happening? All these folks are looking at the same world. They're doing what they call theory. They're trying to look at the world and develop concepts to focus them in on what's important and to facilitate their thinking in a way that will serve their needs. So we have to ask ourselves, why are the concepts that folks come up with so different? Is the reason their concepts differ so much because some approaches are stupid and others are smart? Are some of the approaches just making it up so their concepts don't correspond to reality? That's one possibility. Or do the different approaches have different priorities causing them to generate different concepts? Are they legitimately trying to accomplish different things and so different features are emphasized and different features are left out? Let's go back and ask about each framework what might cause it to look like it does. How come Marxism has the central concepts it has, but it doesn't have mothering, fathering, woman, man, sexism, race, ethnicity, religion, and many other possible basic concepts at its very core? It doesn't mean that these phenomena never show up for a Marxist, but they are not the basic concepts employed when the Marxist looks at society and history. Why? Because they aren't about class struggle, you might say? Sure, but so what? Why does that matter most to the Marxist? Because Marx wrote it that way, you might say? Well, yes. The thing we call Marxism has the concepts it has because Marx, and others as well, put them in. You could say that, yes. But other than that Marx wrote it that way, what else might explain Marxism's choice of concepts? Well, Marxism focuses in on class and on the economy. Why might it do that? It could be because Marxists look at the world, and to them it seems that economy is the most important thing. Economy runs the show. They feel that if they focus their concepts on the economy, other more detailed concepts about other phenomena can come later. By having their central concepts focus on economic relations, they'll get a theory that's going to get to the heart of matters quickest. There is another possible reason, however. Maybe my interests are somehow more correlated to economy than to anything else. My choice of core concepts could be due to an honest, objective assessment, whether right or wrong, that economics is most important for explanation, prediction, or intervention regarding everything that is social or historical. But my choice of core concepts could also be due to a more subjective assessment stemming from the limitations and pressures that I myself feel in my own life, which might not be entirely representative of society more broadly. It could be that I don't even take into account the possibility that other things are historically comparably important, merely because they aren't comparably important to me in my personal life, 
or because I don't want to look at them closely, because if I did, it would be damaging to my interests. Think about male thinkers ignoring gender, for example. Okay, let's use another example outside of the radical realm to try to clarify this key point. What's neoclassical economics? That's a name given to economic theory that's taught in universities. And that theory, too, has various concepts, such as supply and demand. And you've probably heard some of the concepts, employment, inflation, market, bank, and so on. Now, if the goal of that theory is to understand the effect of economics on human beings, there will be a concept human. You can't have a theory that's supposed to understand something if the thing isn't one of the concepts of the theory. Theories are about their concepts. No concept human, no attention given to humans. So, okay, there will be a concept human, and we can guess that we will see in it, presumably, all the various attributes of humans that could be affected by the economy. But in fact, if you actually look at bourgeois economics, surprisingly, you don't find that. Humans in that rich and complex sense aren't in the theory as a basic concept, or at least in the main core elements of the theory. Neoclassical economics doesn't include that humans are changed by the workplace and highlight how that occurs, nor does it recognize that humans are changed by engaging in market transactions, or even explain how humans are changed by consumption, nor does it highlight how humans are changed by income distribution, patterns of ownership, levels of employment, or divisions of labor. It doesn't incorporate a concept for humans, for that matter, that includes all the various facets that all these economic phenomena impact. It doesn't highlight and track affected facets of humans, such as our consciousness, our feelings, our integrity, our skills and talents, our sense of solidarity, our empowerment, and even our physical well-being, which are certainly economically relevant, we would likely agree. Instead, the theory just says that inputs are transformed into outputs, inputs being the material things we combine in our labors and the work itself, and outputs being the cars or other products. But humans don't figure into the conceptual framework as humans. Humans, in all their many variants and conditions, aren't present. The theory, in other words, has a certain purpose and leaves out things not bearing on that purpose. For example, in this case, much of what constitutes being human and how being human is impacted by economic activity and outcomes that affect our personalities, our dignity, our levels of fulfillment and self-esteem, our consciousness and confidence and skills, and so on. Leaving some things out is called abstracting, and the theory puts other things into priority by settling on preferred concepts. There is nothing wrong per se with including and excluding features or abstracting. Every theory must do it. But a theory can leave out something wrongly to its detriment. It might do this by oversight, making an honest mistake. But a theory could also leave out something important because its practitioners literally want to leave it out, either because it is peripheral to or is contrary to the theorist's interests. The practitioners of the theory may want to leave something out because it is something they don't want themselves to pay attention to. For example, the plight of workers in the workplace. Well, they may leave something out so as not to help anyone else pay attention to it. For example, the potential power of workers functioning as a class. So the question arises, why might the practitioners of neoclassical economics want to leave out the effect of economics on people's personalities? Well, of course, once we ask the question, we have already answered it. 
because highlighting that would make it hard to rationalize the anti-human effects of the economy away. Exactly. Neoclassical economists claim they are trying to understand the economy, but that's really an exaggeration. They are trying to talk about the economy in a way that will seem appropriate and compelling, which means it has to provide some understanding for sure, but that will in the first place rationalize and justify it as the only possible good economy. So they don't want to look at anything that might disrupt that claim. But what if you're a capitalist and you're keeping track of what's going on in the economy? You need the truth. Right. You don't want to rationalize while you're doing business. You want to get useful and truthful answers to questions that you care about. So you have records, and it pays attention to things in a different fashion than does neoclassical economics. The capitalist does care about many things having to do with the condition of workers and their consciousness. For example, the neoclassical economic theories abstract out. The capitalist goes to business school, not to economics graduate school, and with good reason. The capitalist wants to understand what is going on in the economy so as to be able to intervene in order to make a profit and to keep making profits, which entails playing pretty close attention to conditions of the workforce. The neoclassical economist, on the other hand, discusses the same economy but with a different purpose, I would say to advance their own careers and to rationalize capitalism as most desirable among all possible options, and then, within that first-order limitation, to understand its operations. So why is the framework the capitalist uses to think about how to act and what to do organized around profits as the bottom line? Well, because that's the capitalist's interest. It's the capitalist way of looking at the world, seeing the world in terms of certain concepts that let him, or really her, accomplish the ends he or she has in mind. And then why does the capitalist toolbox contain a lot of concepts missing from the neoclassical economist toolbox, and vice versa? Because understanding the economy so as to be able to make most profits is not the same as explaining the economy in a way which rationalizes and legitimates it. All right, I want to take another little detail if I could. The above is a broad argument, a kind of intimation of a case against neoclassical economics. It is not a complete, full argument. That would take us too far afield. It would require that we closely investigate the theory and its concepts and its claims and show how they are truncated by an overriding interest in rationalizing as opposed to honestly trying to understand the economy. That's for another time. But I do want to make it just a little more credible that it could be the case, so I want to take another example of the same dynamic, but one for which we have a very clear piece of simple and virtually irrefutable evidence. Consider political theory, the stuff taught in undergraduate and graduate political science departments. It is supposed to be a theory or a conceptual framework for understanding the workings of political institutions, government, the judiciary, and so on. How are policies made? What pressures come into play? What rules and values guide the outcomes? What can we predict? Suppose that we consider a political science department in the old Soviet Union around 1989. And suppose some top general in the Russian Politburo, the central government policy-making institution, stole volumes of documents that were secreted away in the vaults and made these available publicly. And suppose they were details of policy-making during the Afghan war, for example. Now, what would we expect the Soviet University political science departments to do? You might reply, look the other way. And yes, that's quite right. 
They would ignore the documents. They would pay no attention. They wouldn't use them. And what would that tell us about those departments? That they really weren't intent on understanding the Soviet government? Yes, it would tell us, tell anyone really, who wasn't being totally obtuse about it, that those departments didn't exist to understand the actual phenomena of the Soviet government and its politics. Rather, they existed to talk about those phenomena in ways that had sufficient relation to actual operations to appear credible, but which rationalized the government choices and operations as moral, wise, etc. The scholars in those Soviet political science departments would have no need to look at the best possible source material because their purpose was not, in fact, to understand what is actually occurring, or even to document it, but to rationalize or obscure it. I think there isn't a person in the U.S. who couldn't understand this argument and who wouldn't laugh at a Soviet political scientist trying to explain away the fact that they ignored these materials. Okay, let's skip back to the U.S. During the Vietnam War, a fellow named Daniel Ellsberg, with super high government security clearance, decided the war was horribly immoral and decided to do something about it. So he entered the secret halls of the U.S. government, where he worked, and stole documents. He Xeroxed them in the dead of night, and he made off with the copies. Then, later, having accumulated volumes of the stuff, he made it public. And in the context of, social, of the social pressure of the time, the material was published, so it was freely available as the Pentagon Papers. And now we come to the punchline. There is not a single political science department in the country where these secret, first-hand, direct documents about U.S. policymaking at a crucial time in U.S. history are used as primary research material. In fact, there are few, if any, graduate political science programs where these documents are used at all, much less prominently. In fact, with the exception of a very few dissident political scientists, the Pentagon Papers are essentially removed from the spectrum of materials that are addressed and discussed. And what does this tell us about the discipline called political science? It tells us the same thing as in the Soviet case, of course, that the departments have as their purpose not firstly to understand political science, and particularly the polity of our society, but to rationalize it. In other words, just what we claimed for neoclassical economics vis-a-vis -vis the economy holds here, except for polity we have a nearly perfect experiment to bear out the claim without having to first dissect the concepts employed in the field. So the point of this is to show that an elaborate intellectual framework employed by lots of people can be other than what it claims to be. It might claim to be concepts for understanding some domain from some point of view, say the polity or the economy, but it might instead actually be concepts for understanding it from a different, unstated point of view, or even just for rationalizing it. Lest we take the wrong conclusion from the above discussion, we may need to briefly reiterate a point before we get back to the radical side of conceptualizing. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with abstracting. There is nothing wrong with having aims and organizing one's toolbox of concepts in light of those aims. Everybody does that. In fact, everybody has to do that, because there is no such thing as a comprehensive theory that is perfectly suitable to all ends and perfectly addresses all facets of existence. No one has a theory that is complete. No one has a theory that focuses its users as efficiently for all ends as some other more directed theories designed to be useful to specific ends. 
Every theory has some focus and some questions it is well suited to address. Theories abstract some phenomena out and choose to incorporate other phenomena, depending on their priorities. Every theory addresses some domain, and the types of questions any theory will most effectively answer will depend on what the theory's users want to be able to understand and affect with it. The problem with the capitalist or the neoclassical economist or the political scientist isn't that they use a conceptual toolbox suited to their needs. We all do that. There is no alternative to doing that. It is that the capitalist needs, to maximize their profits and power, regardless of the impact on others, are vile and immoral. And the neoclassical economists or political scientists needs to first rationalize the system, and only then, not violating that precept to understand it, are duplicitous and manipulative. And the problem is that each claims to be doing something quite different from what they are, in fact, doing. Okay. So let's go back to the theories we were dealing with before that radicals might use to deal with society and history. For example, why is it that feminism comes into being and looks the way it does? Why does it have the concepts it has? Somebody who is a strong feminist, answer please, because it's interested in the relationship between people. Yes, but which relationship? The one between people and men. People meeting women, I take it, and men meeting the dregs. Okay, I suppose I can go with that for the moment. And so whose interests are guiding the choices of this theory? Women's interests. Broadly, yes, of course. And so women look at the world from the point of view of their interest and try to name what the f important features are and what are the key features to keep track of, and they arrive at a set of concepts. Now, it shouldn't be surprising that those concepts are going to have a certain tilt, let's call it. And other concepts, when someone looks at the world starting out with another set of priorities, are going to have a different tilt. That makes sense. To hammer it home, think of a radio for a second. I have a theory of the radio suitable for getting sounds out of it by turning the knob and controlling the volume. My concepts are knob, volume, station, and so on. Someone else has a theory of the radio that gets to the innards of it and permits fixing problems that arise inside. Her concepts might be transistor, diode, or whatever. Another person has a theory of it that is still more basic, emphasizing electromagnetic waves. We have different purposes, so we have different concepts and theory. There is nothing wrong with that, as long as we are each also true to the reality we are trying to deal with and honest about what we are doing. Now take this recognition back to theorizing society. It might be that a particular viewpoint is too narrow in light of some end, but it also might be that that same particular viewpoint is quite powerful, at least for a certain set of other priorities. What we need to do is to develop a conceptual toolbox to help look at society and history in ways highlighting human needs and effects on human beings so as to predict how things will affect us and how we can use usefully intervene. The above was essentially some of the kind of thinking that led to the broad perspective that informs our podcast, Revolution Z, and that informs the theory that lies behind our podcast, and that informs the vision that emerges from our podcast. Indeed, those who are familiar with Revolution Z will probably recognize the relevance of what we've been saying to one of the key things that is part of the intellectual background and the logic of participatory economics. That is the claim that in capitalism and in post-capitalism, 
there can be a class between labor and capital. Uh, that's a, uh, a recognition that a concept was missing, which needs to be added to alert us, to focus us on something that's very important. That's the logic. So the idea is that uh, the typical Marxist analysis doesn't include this concept. We call it the coordinator class. And in not including it, it doesn't focus on it. It doesn't address the relationship it has to, in capitalism, the owners above and the workers below, and in post-capitalism, potentially to the workers below. Whereas, after adding this class to our set of concepts, our intellectual toolbox, we pay attention to that dynamic. And as a result, we come up with a very different picture of the economic vision that we want to attain. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.